From the Earth to the Moon Jules Verne Chapter 4 Reply from the Observatory of Cambridge Barbicane, however, lost not one moment amid all the enthusiasm of which he'd become the object. His first care was to reassemble his colleagues in the boardroom of the gun club. There, after some discussion, it was agreed to consult the astronomers regarding the astronomical part of the enterprise. Their reply, once ascertained, they could then discuss the mechanical means, and nothing should be wanting to ensure the success of this great experiment. A note couched in precise terms, containing special interrogatories, was then drawn up and addressed to the Observatory of Cambridge in Massachusetts. This city, where the first university of the United States was founded, is justly celebrated for its astronomical staff. There are to be found assembled all the most eminent men of science. Here is to be seen at work that powerful telescope which enabled Bond to resolve the nebula of Andromeda and Clark to discover the satellite of Sirius. This celebrated institution fully justified on all points the confidence reposed in it by the gun club. So after two days, the reply so impatiently awaited was placed in the hands of President Barbicane. It was couched in the following terms. The director of the Cambridge Observatory to the president of the gun club at Baltimore. Cambridge, October 7. On the receipt of your favor of the sixth instant, addressed to the Observatory of Cambridge, in the name of the members of the Baltimore Gun Club, our staff was immediately called together, and it was judged expedient to reply as follows. The questions which have been proposed to it are these. 1. Is it possible to transmit a projectile up to the moon? 2. What is the exact distance which separates the Earth from its satellite? 3. What will be the period of transit of the projectile when endowed with sufficient initial velocity? And consequently, at what moment ought it to be discharged in order that it may touch the moon at a particular point? 4. At what precise moment will the moon present herself in the most favorable position to be reached by the projectile? 5. What point in the heavens ought the cannon to be aimed at which is intended to discharge the projectile? 6. What place will the moon occupy in the heavens at the moment of the projectile's departure? Regarding the first question, is it possible to transmit a projectile up to the moon? Answer, yes, provided it possess an initial velocity of 1,200 yards per second. Calculations prove that to be sufficient. In proportion, as we recede from the Earth, the action of gravitation diminishes in the inverse ratio of the square of the distance. That's to say, at three times a given distance, the action is nine times less. Consequently, the weight of a shot will decrease and will become reduced to zero at the instant that the attraction of the moon exactly counterpoises that of the Earth. That is to say, at 47.50 seconds of its passage. At that instant, the projectile will have no weight whatever, and if it passes that point, it will fall into the moon by the sole effect of the lunar attraction. The theoretical possibility of the experiment is therefore absolutely demonstrated. 
Its success must depend upon the power of the engine employed. As to the second question, what is the exact distance which separates the Earth from its satellite? Answer. The moon does not describe a circle round the Earth, but rather an ellipse, of which our Earth occupies one of the foci. The consequence, therefore, is that at certain times it approaches nearer to, and at other times it recedes farther from, the Earth. In astronomical language, it's at one time in apogee, at another in perigee. Now, the difference between its greatest and its least distance is too considerable to be left out of consideration. In point of fact, in its apogee, the moon is 247,552 miles, and in its perigee, 218,657 miles only distant, a fact which makes a difference of 28,895 miles, or more than one-ninth of the entire distance. The perigee distance, therefore, is that which ought to serve as the basis of all calculations. To the third question. Answer. If the shot should preserve continuously its initial velocity, it would require little more than nine hours to reach its destination. But inasmuch as that initial velocity will be continually decreasing, it will occupy 300,000 seconds, that is, 83 hours, 20 minutes, in reaching the point where the attraction of the Earth and Moon will be in equilibrio. From this point, it will fall into the Moon in 50,000 seconds, or 13 hours, 53 minutes, and 20 seconds. It will be desirable, therefore, to discharge it 97 hours, 13 minutes, 20 seconds, before the arrival of the Moon at the point aimed at. Regarding question 4, at what precise moment will the moon present herself in the most favorable position, etc.? Answer. After what has been said above, it will be necessary, first of all, to choose the period when the moon will be in perigee, and also the moment when she will be crossing the zenith, which latter event will further diminish the entire distance by a length equal to the radius of the earth, that is, 3,919 miles the result of which will be that the final passage remaining to be accomplished will be 214,976 miles. But although the moon passes her perigee every month, she does not reach the zenith always at exactly the same moment. She does not appear under these two conditions simultaneously except at long intervals of time. It will be necessary, therefore, to wait for the moment when her passage in perigee shall coincide with that in the zenith. Now, by a fortunate circumstance, on the 4th of December in the ensuing year, the moon will present these two conditions. At midnight, she will be in perigee, that is, at her shortest distance from the earth, and at the same moment she'll be crossing the zenith. On the fifth question, at what point in the heavens ought the cannon to be aimed? Answer. The preceding remarks being admitted, the cannon ought to be pointed to the zenith of the place. Its fire, therefore, will be perpendicular to the plane of the horizon, and the projectile will soonest pass beyond the range of the terrestrial attraction. But in order that the moon should reach the zenith at a given place, it's necessary that the place should not exceed in latitude the declination of the luminary. In other words, it must be comprised within the degrees 
zero, and 28 of latitude north or south. In every other spot the fire must necessarily be oblique, which would seriously militate against the success of the experiment. As to the sixth question, what place will the moon occupy in the heavens at the moment of the projectile's departure? Answer. At the moment when the projectile shall be discharged into space, the moon, which travels daily forward, 13 ampersand, 10 minutes, 35 seconds, will be distant from the zenith point by four times that quantity, that is, by 52 ampersand, 41 minutes, 20 seconds, a space which corresponds to the path which she will describe during the entire journey of the projectile. But inasmuch as it is equally necessary to take into account the deviation which the rotary motion of the earth will impart to the shot, and as the shot cannot reach the moon until after a deviation equal to 16 radii of the earth, which calculated upon the moon's orbit are equal to about 11 degrees, it becomes necessary to add these 11 degrees to those which express the retardation of the moon just mentioned. That is to say, in round numbers, about 64 degrees. Consequently, at the moment of firing, the visual radius applied to the moon will describe, with the vertical line of the place, an angle of 64 degrees. These are our answers to the questions proposed to the Observatory of Cambridge by the members of the Gun Club. To sum up, first, the cannon ought to be planted in a country situated between 0 and 28 latitude of north or south. Second, it ought to be pointed directly toward the zenith of the place. Third, the projectile ought to be propelled with an initial velocity of 12,000 yards per second. Fourth, it ought to be discharged at 10 hours, 46 minutes, 40 seconds on the 1st of December of the ensuing year. Fifth, it will meet the moon four days after its discharge, precisely at midnight on the 4th of December, at the moment of its transit across the zenith. The members of the gun club ought, therefore, without delay, to commence the works necessary for such an experiment, and to be prepared to set to work at the moment determined upon. For if they should suffer this 4th of December to go by, they'll not find the moon again under the same conditions of perigee and of zenith, until 18 years and 11 days forward. The staff of the Cambridge Observatory place themselves entirely at their disposal in respect of all questions of theoretical astronomy, and herewith add their congratulations to those of all the rest of America. For the astronomical staff, J. M. Belfast, Director of the Observatory of Cambridge. Chapter 5. The Romance of the Moon an observer endued with an infinite range of vision, and placed in that unknown center around which the entire world revolves, might have beheld myriads of atoms filling all space during the chaotic epoch of the universe. Little by little, as ages went on, a change took place. A general law of attraction manifested itself, to which the hitherto errant atoms became obedient. These atoms combined together chemically, according to their affinities, form themselves into molecules, and compose those nebulous masses with which the depths of the heavens are strewed. These masses became immediately endued with a rotary motion around their own central point. 
This center, formed of indefinite molecules, began to revolve around its own axis during its gradual condensation. Then following the immutable laws of mechanics, in proportion as its bulk diminished by condensation, its rotary motion became accelerated, and these two effects continuing, the result was the formation of one principal star, the center of the nebulous mass. By attentively watching, the observer then would have perceived the other molecules of the mass following the example of this central star, become likewise condensed by gradually accelerated rotation and gravitating round it in the shape of innumerable stars. Thus was formed the nebulae, of which astronomers have reckoned up nearly 5,000. Among these 5,000 nebulae, there's one which has received the name of the Milky Way, and which contains 18 millions of stars, each of which has become the center of a solar world. If the observer had then specially directed his attention to one of the more humble and less brilliant of these stellar bodies, a star of the fourth class, that which is arrogantly called the Sun, all the phenomena to which the formation of the universe is to be ascribed would have been successively fulfilled before his eyes. In fact, he would have perceived the Sun, as yet in the gaseous state, and composed of moving molecules, revolving round its axis in order to accomplish its work of concentration. This motion, faithful to the laws of mechanics, would have been accelerated with the diminution of its volume, and a moment would have arrived when the centrifugal force would have overpowered the centripetal, which causes the molecules all to tend toward the center. Another phenomenon would now have passed before the observer's eye, and the molecules situated on the plane of the equator, escaping like a stone from a sling of which the cord had suddenly snapped, would have formed around the sun sundry concentric rings resembling that of Saturn. In their turn again, these rings of cosmical matter, excited by a rotary motion about the central mass, would have been broken up and decomposed into secondary nebulosities, that is to say, into planets. Similarly, he would have observed these planets throw off one or more rings each, which became the origin of the secondary bodies, which we call satellites. Thus then, advancing from atom to molecule, from molecule to nebulous mass, from that to principal star, from star to sun, from sun to planet, and hence to satellite, we have the whole series of transformations undergone by the heavenly bodies during the first days of the world. Now, of those attendant bodies which the sun maintains in their elliptical orbits by the great law of gravitation, some few in turn possess satellites. Uranus has eight, Saturn eight, Jupiter four, Neptune possibly three, and the Earth one. This last one of the least important of the entire solar system we call the moon, and it is she whom the daring genius of the Americans profess their intention of conquering. The moon, by her comparative proximity and the constantly varying appearances produced by her several phases, has always occupied a considerable share of the attention of the inhabitants of the earth. From the time of Thales of Miletus of the 5th century B.C., down to that of Copernicus in the 15th and Tycho Brahe in the 16th century A.D., observations have been from time to time carried on with more or less correctness, 
until in the present day the altitudes of the lunar mountains have been determined with exactitude. Galileo explained the phenomena of the lunar light produced during certain of her phases by the existence of mountains, to which he assigned a mean altitude of 27,000 feet. After him, Avelius, an astronomer of Danzig, reduced the highest elevations to 15,000 feet. But the calculations of Riccioli brought them up again to 21,000 feet. At the close of the 18th century, Herschel, armed with a powerful telescope, considerably reduced the preceding measurements. He assigned a height of 11,400 feet to the maximum elevations and reduced the mean of the different altitudes to little more than 2,400 feet. But Herschel's calculations were in their turn corrected by the observations of Halley, Nasmith, Bianchini, Grutthuysen, and others. But it was reserved for the labors of Bohr and Medler, finally, to solve the question. They succeeded in measuring 1,905 different elevations, of which six exceed 15,000 feet and 22 exceed 14,400 feet. The highest summit of all towers to a height of 22,606 feet above the surface of the lunar disk. At the same period, the examination of the moon was completed. She appeared completely riddled with craters, and her essentially volcanic character was apparent at each observation. By the absence of refraction in the rays of the planets occulted by her, we conclude that she is absolutely devoid of an atmosphere. The absence of air entails the absence of water. It became, therefore, manifest that the selenites, to support life under such conditions, must possess a special organization of their own, must differ remarkably from the inhabitants of the earth. At length, thanks to modern art, instruments of still higher perfection search the moon without intermission, not leaving a single point of her surface unexplored. And notwithstanding that her diameter measures 2,150 miles, her surface equals the 1 15th part of that of our globe, and her bulk the 1 49th part of that of the terrestrial spheroid, not one of her secrets was able to escape the eyes of the astronomers, and these skillful men of science carried to an even greater degree their prodigious observations. Thus they remarked that during full moon the disk appeared scored in certain parts with white lines, and during the phases with black. On prosecuting the study of these with still greater precision, they succeeded in obtaining an exact account of the nature of these lines. They were long and narrow furrows, sunk between parallel ridges, bordering generally upon the edges of the craters. Their length varied between 10 and 100 miles, and their width was about 1,600 yards. Astronomers called them chasms, but they could not get any further. Whether these chasms were the dried-up beds of ancient rivers or not, they were unable thoroughly to ascertain. The Americans, among others, hoped one day or other to determine this geological question. They also undertook to examine the true nature of that system of parallel ramparts discovered on the moon's surface by Grutthuysen, a learned professor of Munich, who considered them to be a system of fortifications thrown up by the Selenetic engineers. These two points, yet obscure, as well as others, no doubt could not be definitely settled except by direct communication with the moon. Regarding the degree of intensity of its light, 
there was nothing more to learn on this point. It was known that it is 300,000 times weaker than that of the sun, and that its heat has no appreciable effect upon the thermometer. As to the phenomenon known as the ashy light, it is explained naturally by the effect of the transmission of the solar rays from the earth to the moon, which give the appearance of completeness to the lunar disk, while it presents itself under the crescent form during its first and last phases. Such was the state of knowledge acquired regarding the Earth's satellite, which the Gun Club undertook to perfect in all its aspects, cosmographic, geological, political, and moral.